The Dockiverse Podcast, Episode 52, Young Time Nerds in Love. On this episode, we have the Monster Movie Review, Room 2 of our 5-Room Dungeon, and another 3-Box Problem. And now, let's get things started. Greetings, gentle listeners. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Doc Cross, and I hope you've all had a few good days since the last episode. I have, and I want to get right into things, so let's go ahead and thank my wonderful and generous patrons over on Patreon. Thank you, David. Thank you, Avis. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Jame. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, Peter. You guys are swell. Now we move on to our monster movie review, and this is another terrible, terrible movie. In fact, this one and the next one I review could well be the worst horror movies of all time, if not the worst movies of all time. They are, I assure you, even worse than Plan 9 from Outer Space. And Plan 9 was terrible. Everybody knows that but it wasn't the worst. The movie I'm going to talk about is called The Creeping Terror. Now, The Creeping Terror is a 1964 horror science fiction film directed, produced, and starring Vic Savage, which, by the way, is not his real name. In fact, I'm not even sure what the hell the guy's real name is. I don't think anybody else is. The plot is centered around an extraterrestrial, slug-like creature that attacks and eats people Entirely swallows them whole in a small American town. And like I said, it is widely considered to be one of the worst films of all time. So here's the basic plot. While driving along a highway in fictional Angel County, California, a sheriff's deputy, Martin Gordon, played by Vic Savage, and his wife, Brett, played by Shannon O'Neill, they meet Martin's uncle, Sheriff Ben, played by Bird Holland, and together they investigate a reported plane crash site. But, oh no, it's not a plane. It's a UFO. They find an abandoned truck, forest ranger's truck, the ranger's hat, and an alien spacecraft that resembles a camping trailer, because this movie was made for about $3. And by the way, a large, slow-moving, slug-like creature emerged from the craft earlier and departed before they arrived. Now, believing the absent ranger might be inside, Ben enters the craft by crawling underneath it. Shortly thereafter, loud screams come along, and there's growls along the lines of those of a lion, and then Martin finally goes and radios for help. Okay, folks, the rest of this movie is basically this incredibly piss-poor monster. Uh, It's supposed to be a slug. It looks more like a moving carpet. It goes around and it's just eating people and these idiots are running around trying to figure out what it is, where it's at, how to kill it. I don't know, maybe pour some salt on it if it's a slug. But the thing is, this movie was so badly made that 
it does not have much in the way of actual dialogue, if any. It's all narration. Even if people are speaking, there's narration over it. The actors actually stop so that the slug can start eating them. At one point, you can see the sneakers of kids who are underneath this carpet. People are helping themselves be eaten by kind of squishing into it. It's just terrible. The whole movie is terrible. You know, it eats families. It eats kids on Lover's Lane. It eats some young girl wearing gold pants. It's just terrible. And, of course, in the end, they kill it. And then there's a narration saying, only God knows for sure if it's dead. Just a terrible, terrible movie. So that's it about the plot. As far as actors go, trust me, you've never heard of any of them, so I'm not even going to name them. The Creeping Terror was directed, produced, and edited by Vic Savage, which was an alias, and he was using the name A.J. Nelson, which is also an alias. And it was written by, partly, by Robert Siliphant. He's the credited writer. He uh, found out about how bad the movie was and everything, and he signed off on, you know, not being part of it, although they still used his name in the credits. He was paid $1,500 for the story. And then Savage followed this payment to Siliphant, who was only 21 at the time, with a nine-page film treatment that he had made up based only on an earlier vague idea for the story. So the whole writing of it is a shit show. Principal photography began in late 1962, but instead of shooting at scenic Lake Tahoe, as Siliphant, the writer, had expected, a muddy pond at Spawn Ranch in Simi Valley, California was used. When the film's special effects creator was not paid for his work, he allegedly stole the original monster costume a day prior to shooting, forcing Savage and his remaining crew to assemble a poorly constructed replica. I can't imagine what the original looked like, but I can tell you the one they used was not a replica of anything except a carpet. The resultant creature was described by John Stanley in his Revenge of the Creature Features movie guide as an elongated alien monster resembling a clumsy shag rug. That is spot on, folks. Spot on. The filming of the movie, such as it was, was not concluded until 1963, and there is minimal dialogue in the film, and nearly all the vocalizations are provided in expository format by a narrator. This is because Savage either shot scenes without regard to the professional quality of sound, or it was improperly transferred, or the original soundtracks were lost, or he just didn't give a rat's ass. He had insufficient funds to pay for basic sound transfers or extensive post-production dubbing. He eventually hired Larry Burrell, a radio newsreader, whose other films include They Saved Hitler's Brain and a nudie cutie called Not Tonight Henry. He narrated the entire film. There was a minor amount of poor quality redubbing that was performed, but it doesn't matter. Savage, as far as the editing part goes, he might have. Nobody knows for sure. He might have checked into a motel with a silent picture-only movieola to quickly assemble the finished film. And he was repeatedly sued by various people, the costume guy, the writer, who knows, just a ton of people were suing hell out of him. And he was facing a possible indictment on charges of fraud, so he vanished. Now, one other name he used was White, so he was apparently never heard from again in the context of film production, and he reportedly died of liver failure in 1975 at the age of 41. Now, in 2009, his wife Lois wrote a tell-all novel 
that featured her life with him, but she used aliases too. Whoever this guy was, he did a totally fucked up movie, vanished, and then probably drank himself to death. Now, with Savage having disappeared, the main financier, William Thurlby, who appears in the film as Dr. Bradford, he acquired the remaining film stock and had an edited version created in an attempt to recoup some of his investment. I don't know how much he invested because they didn't spend shit on a movie, but yeah, he was out some money. So there were no sound reels at all, so he added constant and occasionally intrusive narration that was even worse than the original narration. Some parts of the film could not be explained because their lack of apparent narrative purpose and the plot gets hazy. It was edited like somebody with no idea what editing is like, which is probably the truth. So the best they could do is either sell it to somebody who's packaging movies for drive-ins or what they did was sell it in 1976 as part of a syndication package. It came out as a package for local television stations it appears fairly frequently on TV. Um, I think it's been on Turner Classic Movies. I know you can see it on YouTube. This is a terrible, terrible movie. And in my considered opinion, the worst monster movie ever made. Hands down. Now, next week, we're going to have one that's right on the tail of this one for being a terrible, terrible bad movie with, yes, once again, narrated dialogue. That'll be coming up next Monday. Now we move on to the five-room dungeon, and the theme of the dungeon we're doing now is Spies Are Forever. This is not an actual dungeon. And this is the second room, the puzzle or role-playing challenge, and our title for this is The Info Search. Now you started off in a casino on top of a building. One of the bad guys escapes by shooting out a window and jumping out, and he's got a sport parachute on his back, and he gets away. But they found out enough information that they know they need to go finding other information all around Rio de Janeiro to find out who the bad guy is. So since you're probably going to be running this as a Mission Impossible style adventure with a group of people, so you're going to have certain people with certain skills, certain characters with certain skills, send them out, split up the party, and have them go talk to various people to find out things. Now, maybe they want to analyze something that they found at the scene, weapon that the bad guy used, or some soil that was on his shoe, something like that. So a couple of your characters, the ones more into forensics or whatever, they're going to have to go and talk to a forensics expert. Your guy who's good with people is going to have to go out and maybe has to seduce a lady, maybe has to seduce a guy. I don't know, however you want to do it. But he has to go find information. You got a couple people that are probably going to have to go talk to the police. And for all we know, the police are in on this. It is South America, after all. And this whole segment, this whole episode, is the puzzle and role-playing challenge. You're putting together a puzzle of who the bad guy is. And you're role-playing by talking to all these people, going all these places, things like that. So when you're done with this episode, this uh, gaming session, they'll know who the bad guy is. And they'll probably have an idea where to find out where he is. They won't know where he is exactly, but they'll have a good idea of who to go talk to to find out where he really has his bad guy headquarters set up. Which, of course, will not be in Rio or even in Brazil, because this is a spy movie. you got to go to exotic locations. And we will talk about that part of it next time. Okay, we are now to the three-box problem. 
which, as I've said before, is where I take slips of paper out of three different little boxes and put them together and see what happens. And this time, our three boxes provided me with Excitable Queen Plotting Something. So, we've got a queen. That's simple enough. She's maybe a queen of a large country, powerful. Maybe a queen of a smaller country, not so powerful. Maybe a queen of a small but powerful country, because, hey, England. Uh, And she's excitable, and there could be a lot of reasons why she's excitable. If she's plotting something, she could be excitable about, oh shit, I could be found out at any moment. She could be excitable because she's maybe a little crazy in the head. She could be excitable in other ways. Maybe she's excitable when, you know, hunky adventures come around and that gets her all confused. And maybe she's just giddy with excitement that she's plotting something and wants to see it happen. Now, what she's plotting, hey, the sky's the limit. Maybe she's plotting on taking over another kingdom. Maybe she's plotting on getting rid of her sister who really wants to be queen, but she doesn't want to have to keep looking over her shoulder. Maybe she's plotting to do her husband the king in so that she can, you know, slide somebody else into the position. Maybe she's plotting just something goofy. Or maybe she's plotting on abdicating without telling anybody. Maybe she's got it all planned out that she wants to quit being a queen and go live somewhere else and do knitting or pole dance or run a tavern or become a mage, something like that. So in this story, your adventures are, for one reason or another, either trying to help her or trying to stop her. And, uh, of course, they could also be innocent bystanders who suddenly get caught up in this plot one way or the other. And they have to deal with this queen who is a little nervous, giddy, crazy, whatever. And maybe they want to help her with the plot, and maybe they don't. But... If the queen is excitable, she may also be paranoid, and she's probably got guards with big sharp weapons, so you gotta tread lightly around her. And there's your plot. You run it, you have the queen all excitable, and these guys, you know, these characters are trying to help her one way or another, or stop her one way or another, and that's your three-box problem right there. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, folks, we are at the end of things, the final bit of the episode, where I thank you, and indeed I do thank you. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions, I can be reached on Facebook, where I'm Doc Cross, on WordPress at the Docverse blog, via email at agentroscoe at gmail.com. If you're listening on Anchor, you can leave a voicemail. And if you're listening on the Patreon page, you can just leave a comment right there, and I will see it because they'll send me a little notification saying, hey, you got a comment. If you'd like to support me via Patreon and hear these podcasts two weeks in advance and hear mini podcasts and get PDFs from years gone by or even get the Instant Places PDFs that I have going up now, you can just hop on over to www patreon.com forward slash dot cross sign up for as little as a buck a month or three bucks a month if you want the instant places pdfs and if you feel like signing up for more than three dollars a month that's fine too because the money will all get spent 
on things I need, like the podcast and a new laptop at some point. Anyway, thank you very much if you support me. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast or advertise on it, and I'm open to either, get in touch with me by any of the methods I mentioned before. Our music was Robots A Cometh by Dan Lebowitz off of the Free Music Archives. And this podcast and everything on it except the music is copyright 2021 by Doc Cross. I will see you folks next time.